Welcome back to the 148th episode of the Daily Flip Podcast. I'm your host, Alex, and today we're going to be flipping through some of the top stories, including two talking about a country song that went viral and the author of that song, and giving us a little bit more detail about his story and some criticisms of his positions, as well as one article talking about how Republicans maybe love a little bit too much, but it's really a story about the empathy that one person feels for someone that was left behind in Afghanistan. And of course, we will end today with our daily delight, a story meant to leave you feeling positive, ready to take on the day. Now, that's enough rambling for me. Let's jump in to our daily debate. So what is your favorite genre of music? You know, I know it feels like it's a little bit of out of left field. If you've listened to some of the daily debates before, you may be like, this isn't politics. But, you know, it's just something interesting that I want to know about. And we are talking about a country music person who is on the rise today. So I just want to know everybody's opinions. I would personally say EDM is close to my number one. But I know a lot of people in my generation really do like country music. And one of the reasons that's the case is highlighted in one of these articles. And we'll get to that here in a minute. But let's jump to this one from the Washington Post. Why the right suddenly loves this country singer. So, of course, Richmond, North of Richmond, written by Oliver Anthony, has taken off on the charts. It's, you know, weaned a little bit, and I've decided to hold back my commentary for a while because he said that he is nonpartisan. He said that he doesn't necessarily lean one way or the other. And some of his lyrics definitely lean towards the right, but you could even just say general populism, maybe even a little bit of progressivism in there in some way, shape, or form, but he's definitely Christian, which is probably going to predispose him to, or an evangelical Christian, which is going to predispose him to be a little bit more to the right on some issues, and I wanted to, you know, stay away from it. Everybody was lambasting him or straight out supporting him because he's saying one thing or the other, but then these articles really came out, and it wasn't just Twitter anymore. It was organized media companies coming out, criticizing him, really revealing his side of the story. And that's when I wanted to at least comment on it because I feel like some of it is a little disingenuous. Some of it is definitely honest and a fair take. So let's jump into a quote talking about, you know, Oliver's overall story. And we can get a little bit of an idea of where he comes from and what his struggle has been like over the last few years. Quote, ever since the video of Oliver Anthony belting out his latest song went viral, Republican politicians have hailed it as a cry of protest from the raw heart of a blue-collar right-wing American. In their telling, the story captures the suffering and indignities inflicted on the working class by the elites describing it in its title, Rich Men North of Richmond. Anthony's lyrics surely speak to millions of struggling Americans. I've been selling my soul. I've been working all day. Overtime hours for BS pay, he sings. But you know who else will love this song? The Richmond, north of Richmond. That's who. With Republicans such as Rep. Marjorie Taylor Greene of Georgia's hailing this song as the anthem of the forgotten Americans. Both the elites north and south of Richmond will be just fine with that. The song seems to lambast these elites for inequality and working class suffering, but it actually channels much of the blame in a very different direction. That's a key reason Republicans like it so much. End quote. And what they're referencing here is, okay, yeah, you have a pop song. You have, 
a really nice little uh, pop song, sorry, a country song, but that is poppy, that is really going to go into pop culture, that is going to have an effect, that's going to resonate with a certain population of people. And it's calling out the rich elites in the Northern Virginia, in Washington, D.C., and the Republicans are jumping on top of this because they see it as a indictment of the Democrats. But that's not just because, oh, it's about the elites. Because if it was just about the elites, guess who also falls into that category? A lot of Republicans in Washington. Now, I'm not saying that they're the richest people in the world, but they have an outsized control over how this country works. They're obviously representing people who are in their districts or in their states. So they're not just you wielding their status in a way that they can get whatever they want done. But because of the place that they're at, because of the office that they hold, they can very well benefit themselves in some way, shape, or form by building up their national profile, getting speaking engagements afterwards, being a lobbyist, or working with certain lobby groups that they really, really are passionate about and getting them to talk to other senators or other congressmen or maybe even try to go talk to the president. You know, if they're on the Democratic side, they could probably say, hey, I think this issue is really important. You're a friend at the lobbying firm. I'm going to try to get you a meeting with Joe Biden. So because of the place that they have in society, they can have outsized influence, and therefore they are, you know, elite in that sense. And if it was calling out all of them, if it was calling out Republicans and Democrats, and they didn't have some of the later quotes in here that are definitely more aligned with some of the right-wing talking points, then the Republicans would not be happy, or they probably they may be happy that, hey, we feel like we can blame it on the other side, we can blame it on Democrats, but even then, it would feel like they're getting called out too. Because, t- to be honest, there are people on the both sides of the aisle, there are good senators on both sides of the aisle that care about their people, that genuinely believe in what they're saying, and doing everything they can to help their constituents. And then there are also bad people on both sides of the aisle who are there to serve their own personal political interests. And when I say that, I'm not saying they don't want to serve their people or they don't do it in the process, but they want to boost their public profile. They're thinking about running for president. They know that some of these offices are stepping stones, things of that nature. So the article is right when it says that the right has clung on to this because it feels like it's calling out the left a little bit more. And we'll get into that here in a second with some of the lyrics. But I also do agree with it that if it was just a general call out of elites, some Republicans probably wouldn't be happy about it either. And some Democrats would probably be praising it just as well. So if we take the intent of some of the comments and some of the lyrics separately from the entire song, you know, maybe this is a a song that really is more populist in nature until this point. And this is what the article goes on to talk about. It goes on to speak about both sides of the aisle really not helping out the people that they say they're trying to help out. And they have a quote here that I want to read you. Quote, naturally, no one should expect serious policy and analysis from a song. Nevertheless, its message is that the overworked and underpaid should blame their plight largely on high taxes, welfare cheats, and cultural elites. 
monitoring their thoughts for a departure from the woke orthodoxy. And this is, uh, I'll stop here for a second, this is where the Republicans are kind of latching onto. They're seeing some of the commentary on the woke stuff, and they're like, oh, yes, he, he definitely is someone who leans a little bit more right. I don't think that is inherently true, but it is definitely a talking point that they can latch onto. Quote, business lobbyists and right-wing politicians have told versions of the distorted story for decades. It seeks to turn people against taxing the risk rich social spending and government regulations designed to protect the public and migrate inequality. But good federal policy could actually do something about that in the way that Anthony personally experienced underpaid overtime work. In 2016, the Obama administration raised the income threshold for federally required time and a half overtime pay from around $23,000 to over $47,000. This could have helped millions of Americans like Anthony, but business groups balked, and it was ultimately blocked in court. Here, rich men indeed conspired to keep overpaid time down, end quote. Now, let's, let's take two things here. Uh, it's interesting because they're talking about how Anthony doesn't want the elites to monitor his life, to have a deeper understanding of everything that he does, to micromanage or to have a microscope and look at every single detail of his life. And that's one of the things he calls out among others. And then they propose or bring up a plan that would require a little bit more oversight by government, a little bit more involvement in the employers' lives and also in the employees' lives. And, you know, it's small, but it's something where they call it out and they're only addressing one part of the issue, which is, oh, he's not getting enough money for his overtime pay. But what about the encroachment of government onto the way that he lives his life and the way that his employer does? Also, while I do agree that the Obama administration tried to put through policies that would definitely help the working class, I want to ask to how much of a degree is that the case? Because if employers have to pay more in order to retain the services of their current employees, then what's going to happen to the lowest performing employees? Maybe there's someone who's not as necessarily as qualified, who just got hired in the last month, who you're trying to help out of a terrible situation. You're trying to give them the potential to move up in the company. And then, well, now you have a whole bunch of extra overtime that you have to pay, which is more expensive than normal hours, you can't necessarily keep all the employees that you used to have. You may have to let that person who's a little bit disadvantaged, who doesn't have all the experience that some of these other guys do, you may have to let him go. Now, of course, I think that we should push for the, I don't want to say the raising of overall overtime pay, but I want to make sure that every single person is getting paid fairly for their efforts. But I also want to ensure that businesses can hire as many people as possible. And that is why these business groups were pushing back on this legislation. I'm not saying that it's 100% right. I'm not saying that they did it in the right way. I'm not saying Obama's policy was terrible. But the article just highlights it and says it's the evil business groups. And it's not trying to give their side of the story. And this is something that's really, really crucial. Because for businesses to operate, they need to have profit, obviously. And if you're juicing overtime pay, if certain employees are staying over the clock, and now instead of being a, let's say, a five-hour limit per week in order to reach that $23,000 a year, now they could work 10, time, 10 hours of overtime pay. Maybe they end up stretching out their hours. Maybe they just run around and do extra work, which is great. 
you know, that's going to increase your productivity. But also those extra 10 hours that you could have somebody on an alternate shift who hasn't gone on overtime yet is going to cost you more money. So just think about these sort of things and don't just take this article straight at face value. And they're trying to say, oh, but we have the solution for Oliver Anthony. But you have a solution that addresses just one issue he's talking about and not all the other issues that he is talking about in the article or sorry, in the song. So it's a little bit one sided here from the Washington Post. But that's what happens when you have someone coming after a song that has gotten really popular or someone who has written something that resonates with the masses. And, you know, I think you could consider Washington, the Washington Post, part of the Richmond, north of Richmond. They're right there in D.C. They're based out of, well, I, technically I believe their office is in Alexandria, Virginia, but I could be wrong on that. But they are part of that elite. They are part of the ones that influence the culture. They're the ones that prescribe different policies. They're the ones that inform their readers how certain things should go, what they should think about certain topics. And I'm not saying they're doing it in a malicious way, and I'm not saying that their readers instantly believe them either, but they are definitely part of that class that has political control and has the ear of the most powerful people just like some of the other lobbyists that are up there who, you know, they want to say what they believe. They want to show what their interests are and they want to affect policy. And the Washington Post, while it is a news organization, it's not its only goal. There are lots of people there that that is not the case. They just want to report the news. You can't deny that the Washington Post, especially when it's owned by Jeff Bezos, has a particular lean. And they want to get certain goals implemented. And I wonder how Jeff Bezos would feel about this idea of increasing the amount of overtime pay with some of his workers in the distribution centers for Amazon. I don't know if he would necessarily be the, the biggest fan. But, you know, obviously it's an independent newspaper. And I don't think this guy's going to get fired for trying to call out the lack of implementation of a policy that big business did not like. But, you know, if we see a firing here in a few years, maybe uh, maybe we could attribute it to that. Maybe we're going to have to look back to the history of this author. So there's also another aspect to this song that I wanted to talk about. And this perspective comes from The Nation. The new Barrett of the right. So, yes, we already talked about how the right is absolutely loving it. This goes into a little bit more detail and actually has quotes from Anthony describing what his song is meant to say and some of the aspects that I didn't mention or weren't mentioned in the first article. Quote, Anthony explains that he began writing songs in earnest in 2021 during COVID and that he was among a large contingent of Americans who felt at a loss of ends amid the pandemic's upheaval. He explained that his search for release via drugs and alcohol during a punishing work schedule started to seem hollow to the point where he felt no longer he could summon any strong emotions over things he actually cared about. So let's actually pause here before we keep going. This talks about, and this is something that I have seen personally that I really think will resonate with a large majority of rural America, which is you have a hard job. You're doing the work that you're supposed to be doing, or at least you doing the work that you believe should be done. And then you drown your sorrows in different substances. You lose purpose. You lose meaning. And this man, Oliver Anthony, 
he turned to Christ. That, you know, uh, it'll go on here in a second to talk about it. But that is one thing where he found his purpose again. And this is a crisis that we're having all across America. This is why it's resonating in a lot of communities, because people feel as though they do not have a direction. They look up into the sky and they see a beautiful blue sky. They see infinite potential, but they don't know what to do with it. They are going through their lives step by step, feeling like they're being underappreciated. And this is not just men. It's not just women. It's everybody who is lost in this generation. And they turn towards drugs in order to remedy that sadness or to just honestly sometimes just waste the time to find something to do with their time. And if it's not that, it also could be the fact that they're trying to not think about it. They're trying to have a distraction. And that's what these drugs do. They provide an out. They provide an opportunity. Not saying everybody on drugs is not responsible. There are plenty of people who can operate while still having a good time or operate while still being medicated to some degree. But for a lot of people, they provide the opportunity to escape from the real world. And sometimes that's needed, but sometimes it leaves you feeling hollow, just like Anthony was talking about. Quote, but he found a sense of purpose in both songwriting and renewed religious faith. After spending much of his life as an angry little agnostic punk, <laughs> his new song then addressed the upshot of this conversation. And this is a quote from him, by the way. Quote, it touches base on human trafficking and atrocities. Anthony starts to explain with his voice trailing off. He then continues, I'll say this. I sit pretty dead center down the aisle on politics and always have. It seems like both sides serve the same master. And that master is not someone of any good to the people of this country. But I think one of the worst things a human being can do is take advantage of a child. And I can't begin to conceptualize what has to happen to someone in order for them to think that that's okay. And I think I draw the line at being quiet when I started to see that becoming normalized. I'll leave it at that, end quote. Now, this article is going to go on to make some pretty strong accusations that he's going down a certain path that YouTube doesn't like the word of. Let's just say that it begins with Q. And there's strong sentiments, the authors say, that this person really buys into that narrative. It kind of goes along, and maybe one of the reasons that it's really popular is because it goes along with the sound of freedom narrative, that this is a giant issue, that people are being human trafficked all over the nation, and some of these people are not above age, they're minors. And I think this is a serious issue. I, I think that it's one that has been overblown, and when I say overblown, I don't mean that, oh, well, it's more important than it is. No, it's extremely important. But the right has focused so heavily on it that the left has gone in and made it a hot-button issue by making outrageous claims. And the right is coming back at them saying, if you don't actually believe in this stuff, you're actually endorsing it. I think that is a lot of inflammatory language. I think we can all acknowledge that we want to protect children. And if we can't acknowledge that, then there's something wrong with you. I'm sorry if you're listening to this and you don't like me for saying that. Get out of here. If you want to hurt children, that is unacceptable. They are the innocence of our society. Not, I'm not saying they are the innocence, as in plural. I am saying they are the innocence, as in the abstract idea of our society. They are the hope for the future. They are a new path if something goes wrong. They are a naive perspective on the world that will be shaped 
by those around them. And if you hurt them, they will perpetuate that hurt for the rest of their lives. They will be paranoid. They will have a hate inside them because that's what they expect of the world when they get hurt by people. And that is not something that we want to perpetuate. And I think anybody would agree with that. Now, would we all go about it in different ways? Would we say there are different proportions to which this story is real and it is actually affecting day-to-day life and lots of families in America? Of course we'll say that. But I think we can all agree that this is a serious issue. And this is something that I think the right and the left have been overly polarized about. It's not worth the time having this cultural war debate about it. Let's actually fix the issue. So the authors go on to talk about how, well, okay, he believes in these certain theories, and it's a country song phenomenon that, oh, yeah, he's pushing back in the on the culture here. We have another one that came out from Jason Aldean, tried in a small town, and they argue that a lot of people see these as really authentic purely because they're country music and because they feel like they're from the heart, they feel like they come from rural America, they are necessarily speaking about the underserved population that doesn't necessarily get all the attention when it comes to the media coverage or when it comes to their issues that are going to be brought up in Congress. It's really the elite, at least that's how the authors go about talking about it, that get a lot of the coverage. And they go on to talk about how this actually does a disservice to just purely believe that because it's a country song, it speaks to the rural America and how it is talking about the heart of what a lot of Americans are thinking about right now. And it's even more of a disservice to align country music with the right when it comes to protest music like Aldine and like Oliver Anthony because they talk about a few other people who were really pushing back on the more liberal side of country music. And I want to read you their their comment here because I feel like it's just kind of out of touch. I'm not going to lie to you. I, I find it interesting that they went in this direction, but it's something that they wrote, and I, it's an interesting perspective. Quote, to put things in perspective here, it's really possible to imagine reporting finding a hey-whatever reaction should any of a wide array of liberal sympathizing country performers, such as Jason Isabel, Tyler Children's, Margot Price, begin a show by calling down brutal Leninist vengeance on their political opponents, end quote. And th- there's a little bit more to it here. But what they're really talking about here is Anthony and Aldine, they're going out, they're making comments before their shows, and then the liberals are calling them out, they're coming after them, and people are mad at that. And then they're saying, well, hold on, if some of the more liberal country singers were coming out and saying, yes, we must crack down on our enemies, we must impose a centralized collective state where we operate the means of production, so on and so forth, that the right wouldn't come out and call it out. And it's like, okay, you're missing the point. I'm not saying that it's okay that either side is ridiculing one or the other, but it is interesting that only one side is ridiculing the song. That is what the conversation is about more nowadays. It really does show that the liberals, or at least the conservatives who I've listened to, would argue that it really does show that the liberals are more on on the side of the elite. And some of the progressives I've listened to have made comments to that effect that, yes, there are elites in Richmond, and they haven't done enough for these sort of people. So it's not just the right that's calling this out. It's honestly more of the populist base. It's more of the people that believe that these kind of songs can have a cultural effect, and they can speak to the hardships that a lot of people face in this 
country. So I think they've kind of missed the ball here when they're making this quote. But that's beyond the point. You know, I don't I don't want to lambast them too hard. It was just close to the end of the article, and they're trying to end on a high note, and they're trying to defend the liberals coming out and attacking, or not attacking, because that, that sounds provocative, but commenting and going after Oliver Anthony and the people that are defending his song. So that's enough about that song. We're going to move on to another article that comes from the Bellwalk. Republicans who love too much. And like I said, this isn't, you know, it's kind of a deceptive title because it has a few different sections. But the one that really resonated with me was a story about a man who had been in Afghanistan and there's somebody that got left behind when the withdrawal did not go to plan and how he had an emotional and psychological struggle with the fact that this man was left behind. And when he reached out, he tried to help him. So let's, you know, summarize at first and then we'll get into the story overall. Quote, it's been a big news week, so I understand if you missed Will Cyber's piece about people left behind in Afghanistan. If so, I hope that you'll make time for it right now because it's a tough read and it's an important read. Everybody in the military has one superpower. Some are great gunslingers. Others are expert bureaucratic knife fighters. (laughs) A precise few are master strategists. I am none of those things. However, my superpower was rare. I was great at befriending Afghanis. I spoke their language, studied their history, and immersed myself in their culture. That superpower nearly destroyed me after the fall of Afghanistan. It's been two years exactly since the last American plane left Cabal. And, along with thousands of other veterans, I still struggle every day. So, this is something that doesn't necessarily get talked about as much, or with when the withdrawal was happening, it was brought up, but we didn't talk about the after effects as much. It's obviously brought up as a talking point to go against Joe Biden or to say that Trump didn't do his job. It's used as a talking point by the politicos in order to show, hey, this was weak on our part. Trump should have done it right. Biden didn't do it right, blah, 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 blah. But we've kind of stopped talking with military experts since then or people who have worked in Afghanistan who have connections there about what it's like to know that someone that you had a connection with, someone that you worked with so closely, someone who was willing to possibly risk their lives if they got taken by the Taliban, that they are in danger because they were working with you. And now that we've pulled out and now that there is no longer an American presence, they're not necessarily as protected now that the Taliban is back in control. That is something that most definitely would weigh on your soul. That's something that because you would think, or at least I would think, because of my direct actions, because I talked to this one person, because I asked them for help and they were willing to give it and they were willing to help translate and they were willing to be on the ground with me in some situations where I needed to talk to the local population, that they're in danger. That is something that's extremely, extremely stressful for a lot of these veterans who served there. And just because we pulled out of Afghanistan, it doesn't mean that that fear goes away. It actually became worse as the Taliban gained control. And now we've had two years of trying to get some of these helpers out who have been applying for visas, and these soldiers have been doing the most in order to help them out. So let's talk about where this psychological distress is really coming from and the fact that he had to go to a therapist in order to really address some of not just the things he faced while he was there, but the after effects and even some of the after effects 
of the withdrawal from Afghanistan. Because imagine you spend years upon years doing something nation-building, trying to create a strong military there, a government, and then in the course of two or three weeks, it all comes crumbling down. It makes you question, was I actually doing anything worthwhile? Was I actually having an impact? Or did everything I do just run down the drain? So let's jump to his quote. Quote, I walked into the Strong Hope's director's office for my discharge meeting. We were reviewing my diagnosis, chronic PTSD, major industry, TBIs, and severe depression. As we review this last month, she asked, are you ready to start giving yourself some grace over Afghanistan? We've talked about you walking away from Afghan havoc work since it's such a drain on you and your family. Quote, once Abdul's out, then I can completely walk away, I tell her. Here's my final case. I owe him one more time. Who's Abdul, she asks. I don't remember him from your stories. I had forgotten him too. I've had so many interpreters throughout my six deployments that keeping track of them is difficult. Abdul proved to be a valuable asset. He was not just an interpreter, but a cultural tour guide. Although immersed in Afghan history, I was out of my element in rural Kandahar. He picked up on nuances, not so much what people said, but how they said it, or sometimes, more importantly, what they didn't say. He helped me connect the dots, end quote. So this man, he had forgotten about this person that had helped him because he had so many different people that had worked with him throughout the years. And yet, he got one photo. He got one photo in the mail about Abdul applying for visas, and he instantly remembered what he did for him, and he has been stressed about it. And this is a real compassionate person. This is a person who really feels other people's pains and recognizes that he can have an impact because he is a U.S. citizen because of his distinguished military service and that he can write along to Abdul and Abdul's lawyers in order to help the visa process because Abdul was rejected for his first visa. And this is, this is a heart of gold here. This is someone who bleeds for the people that help him, for the people in his community, the people who are actually trying to do good. And this is something that we have to respect. And we have to acknowledge that there are plenty of other veterans who have been affected by the Afghanistan withdrawal that feel this same way. And I'm not saying that it's not being talked about. Obviously, this article highlights it. But we need to talk about this more, not just the effect that it's had on the people in Afghanistan and the Taliban coming in and taking over, but also the effect on the people that were there, that spent their lives on a very particular mission, making connections, connecting the dots, as he says, and really giving their all and working with people on the ground who are now at danger. This is something that we've completely ignored about this conversation, and this is why it was a travesty to see the pullout and the way that it did. And I think that we just need to acknowledge this side of the story. I haven't seen much commentary about this, especially two years after. It's kind of gone you know, to the wayside. Conservatives still bring it up, and they try to use it as a political talking point. Rather than trying to actually call out and bring stories to the front like this, they just talk about the political implications. And Democrats on their side of the aisle, they are just trying to defend their position, what they did in Afghanistan. They're trying to sweep all of it underneath the rug so they don't have to talk about it at all. It is sad, and it's an interesting phenomenon nonetheless. But, you know, this all this stuff is, you know, a little bit more sad, a little bit more down. So let's jump to our final story, which is our daily delight. This one comes from the Hidden Times. Feline engineer 
Kitty fixes light bulb in adorable video. So we all know how annoying fixing a light bulb can be. If only we had help like this little guy. Quote, many cat videos make us say aww. And a new addition to this list is this one that shows a kitty fixing a light bulb. Since being shared, this video has won the hearts of many. End quote. And, you know, if... But if you need something that's a little bit more, if you need someone who's a little bit more delicate to help you out, I would not suggest this little guy at all because, you know, he had a very interesting way of fixing this light bulb. Quote, he, it begins to show a cat near a bulb. As the video goes on, it shows the kitty hitting the light to fix it. But in the end, the cat was successful at his task, end quote. And if you want to see any of the cute photos or videos or read any of today's articles, there will be a link in the description below that like and subscribe button where you can find all of them. Also down in the description, you can find the link on Spotify, Pocket Cast, Google Podcasts, as well as Podvine. And with all that said, there's only one more thing to say. Stay safe. Don't die.